everyone, and welcome to part two of the Helsinki 1952 Olympopod. And our chat about these games and with James Ward were just so good that it lasted for over two hours. So, as I said at the end of last week's episode, we're breaking it into two. So if you haven't heard part one yet, I'd recommend going to that episode, listening to that, and then joining us here for part two. If you have listened to part one, well, welcome back, and let's pick up where we left off. find a little bit I don't know just just doesn't really make sense because in 1952 it was kind of the first Olympics where we suddenly had this kind of debate that became very very political and very very public about amateurism versus uh, professionalism because up until this point as you said especially in equestrianism you had to be not just a soldier but you had to be a officer to compete so by that very nature you were professional you were a professional officer and that was the only way that you could compete in those particular events and um, we've seen people and often they were people of color or people who were working class being hounded for their gold medals because they had taken money just to survive at various stages we now come to 1952 and the Americans are saying these Soviets are professionals. How'd you feel, Chris? Yeah, although they believed that the Soviets were professionals, they still, at the end of the day, kind of had to uh, turn a blind eye to it. In the end, it didn't really matter. They said, yes, uh, they, they felt they were professionals because they were, uh, for the most part, professional soldiers and uh, competing as uh, athletes mostly. I, I don't know what their actual military background was, most of these Russians, but I guess they were able to spend most of their time, uh, such as the, the uh, football team, in training. I know that Avery Brundage, who is our arch enemy number one when it comes to professionalism and has screwed over many people over the years, uh, basically had to kind of uh, take his medicine here and accept that the Soviet Union were going to have these quote-unquote professionals because if they said no, then they feared that the Soviets would just go and create their own Olympic Games because there was already like similar large events happening in East Europe at the time. So they just felt, okay, we have to get them on board. And yeah, so a lot of uh, hypocrisy, I think, at the time. Which still goes through a lot of things today as well. But like, I, I, like when you look at small countries, which includes Ireland and it, it, it includes a lot of countries in Europe, um, which don't have an Olympic body, which can support teenagers throughout their professional career, um, people do just have to take up scholarships in America. And it and it's go and it's going through universities, and they do fantastically well, and they do the best that they can do for themselves, um, which includes reaching the best that they can within their sport, but also, you know, they they get something out of it. They get a very uh, a very good education out of it. But but like I I I sometimes feel when we get this kind of conversation about amateurism, you know. 
America had a they got to start this at a different footing than the rest of us, which was a lot of private money that you could charitably, amateurly support someone professionally, but not professionally. And then all of a sudden, when, you know, there were these people in the Soviet Union that they were, that were at the same level just being supported to be able to support their families. This was professionalism. Not the right kind of amateurism. Yeah. And and now we have this, like now, and, and I do understand that now in the Olympics, we have every, essentially every sporting body has a different set of rules. But, you know, you have to decide. And again, we're going back to Ireland, but Ireland are famously okay at amateur boxing and people have to decide whether they want to go professional or whether they want to represent their country. Whereas a lot of people on track and field, they can get sponsors and can still compete for their countries. So we don't, we, we, we haven't in the last uh, 70 years, we haven't come up with the solution. And not even mm. in the last 70 years, in the last century and a bit. Well, and now in boxing, even professionals can compete. They just have to uh, adapt to the amateur rules and, and qualify. So, yeah, it's um, it's weird. I mean, boxing is the only amateur sport left among them. And we know how uh, <laughs> how to, to quote Michael Conlon. Uh, the Irish boxer in 2016 saying that it's rotten to the core. So yeah, I'm not uh, not such a big fan of Olympic boxing anymore. I'm it was afraid. it was the only it was the only Olympic sport that I've ever attended live that I just I just didn't get. Like every mm. other sport, you know, you, you soak up the atmosphere. You get you finally understand what's going on. Olympic boxing, I did not get. <laughs> well, because because you went to see it in Rio, where every decision was madness but yeah exactly exactly and that, like, and that was the thing like like there was no way to understand what was going on it was it was like you know when we we were talking about uh boxing events in 1908 or 1912 mm. and we were saying that riots happened i understood that because i was there and i was kind of like what sorry like i don't even know who's boxing it's not even that i don't understand your decisions i just like who is this person and who is this i don't know you were ready to tear the chairs out of the speeches and start yes. okay. but unfortunately this is my fourth event of the day so i was a bit lethargic so i didn't riot that was my only reason and there thus saved the olympic games in 2016 and do you know what? The three events that I went to prior to that were weightlifting. And I do actually have some good stories about that. Because I do love weightlifting. Weightlifting is the best Olympic sport that there is. And we've had we've had two people as guests who are not fans of weightlifting. And just and just and and just to give a bit of like when the lockdown happened um first 12 months ago I spent a bit of time in James's house uh, with James and my sister who was James's wife and James's children who are my niece and nephew and I I did kind of force them to watch a lot of Olympic replays 
which included, I would say, about eight hours straight of Olympic weightlifting. And there were people, there were naysayers at the start who said, like, oh, we don't like Olympic weightlifting. And I said, well, okay, well, for the next eight hours, we're going to be watching Olympic weightlifting. And they, they, they very much, James, do you like Olympic weightlifting now? I live for Olympic weightlifting. Yeah, exactly. Give me eight, eight hours of your life. I will get you into Olympic weightlifting. <laughs> anyway, one of, one of the things about this, which I, I just found very interesting, because... I love Olympic weightlifting. And then over the last, I would say, kind of couple of months, I've had a couple of people who've said, but it's so bad for the athletes in terms of physically. Like it's physically damaging to the athletes. And it did kind of make me go, you know, is it almost kind of this, um, are we expecting... I don't know, like, are, are we expecting people pushing their bodies to the limit too far? But one of the things about the 1952 games, it's just like the amount of people who took up Olympic weightlifting, who, because obviously we're in 1952, very close to uh, the Second World War, um. The guy who won the lightweight uh, gold for the US, it was Tommy Kono. He was in one of the, he was born to Japanese immigrants in the US. He um, was in one of the uh, camps, the, the, the US internment camps for Japanese uh, within the US. And, um, and he he had severe asthma and he started just taking up weights. Uh, he was 12 years old at the time. He started taking up the weights and he just found that it the, the either the desert air and the starting to working physically, it brought him to a whole new level of um a whole new level of strength. And he went on to win gold and he credits the weightlifting as saving his life because he did get drafted into the Korean War and at a certain stage he got brought back to the US because people said you know he's going to be an Olympic hopeful we better bring him back in case he gets killed <laughs> um, but he was he was just one of the guys but there's a load of guys there was like there's one of the Soviets Yevgeny Lapotin and again this is a guy who was suffering severely from malnutrition and he took up weightlifting he just simply took up weightlifting to be able to exist again after uh, after having such severe malnutrition and again uh, he he won only silver two Tommy Konos uh, gold but the most incredible one was Ivan Udokov, who again was a Soviet. At 17, he was captured by the uh, Germans. He was deported to Buchenwald concentration camp. Um, he was freed four years later in 1945, so at 21. He weighed 30 kilos at the time and was unable to walk. And he again, he simply take, took up weightlifting, simply to be able to not just, you know, not to be able to compete in the 1952 Olympics, but simply to be able to walk again. And he took this up and he, he took, I think I believe he took a gold in Helsinki for the 56 uh, kilogram 
weightlifting. I love weightlifting. But in 1952, it's just, it's all of these people who just had to come across so many odds in the 30s and 40s to get where they were. And it's incredible. Weightlifting saved their lives in some of the cases. Potentially saved their lives. But like, yeah. I mean, like, it, it, like, particularly with Ivan Idovdov, like, he literally could not walk out of his concentration camp. 30 kilos. And like, I understand with an, like, uh, under 56 kilograms, this is a very small weight anyway. But he could not walk because he was 30 kilos. Hmm having spent four years in a concentration camp. And he took up weights. And uh, within 11 years, he won gold at the Olympics. And, you know, we're we're starting to get at these uh, games where the people we talk about are now alive. This particular person isn't. (laughs) But, like, we are starting to get at people who can potentially be alive. Like, there are people in the 1952 games who are alive. You know, we were talking about people in the 86 and 1900 and 1904 who were so far away. But there are people now who's, if they aren't alive, their children are alive. These, These are people who are within touching distance. This is the third game that has a torch race. We've had a an Olympic cauldron, which um, I will say and say again, I love an Olympic cauldron. Best. Mm-hmm. Some great Olympic cauldrons in recent years. Um, Sydney, great Olympic cauldron. London, great Olympic cauldron. Which, which, sorry, which London? Oh, 2012, sorry. Recent London, okay. 2012. I have no opinion on the earlier one, but that said, I am open to persuasion. It's currently visible in Wembley. It was taken down when Wembley was redone, but you can go and see it. And it's nice, but you know. Um, the one worst Olympic holder of all time? Atlanta. It's Atlanta. It's Atlanta. I knew it. I knew it. Because I've heard you say it before. You've <laughs> called me. you me in the middle of the night and I've been like, sorry, James, you're my brother-in-law. Like, I have to answer what's going on. And he'd be like, Atlanta. And like, and here, and here we are, and here we are. They thought it would be a good idea to have lots of little flames around a big statue of a flame. It's dreadful. And then London said, Do you know what? Lots of little flames could work. 2012 London. And it did. It was lovely. Atlanta, it's just, I can't. Okay, sorry. The point here, though, is that this is the third time we have, uh, we've had Olympic cauldrons since Amsterdam, um, I believe. And the, we've had an Olympic torch race for this is the third the third iteration the first time um was for the 36 games and then london did it after the war and then now uh, we have a we have a, a third go and so what they did and what they've done since 1936 is that they start by lighting the flame in in olympia in the ceremony with people dressed as as vestal virgins which goes back to to roman and greek traditions of you know passing a flame for starting a new ceremony or starting a new um often for starting a new habitation but i suppose that's where it comes from um everybody's favorite uh, sporting event founder slash ceo pierre de coubertin was present at the first cauldron ceremony and you can imagine that he'd enjoy this it seems it's very up the street it's all very well yeah 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 yeah. he'd like a vestal virgin as long as that was that that was all that that she was allowed to do absolutely fair and bury her under the ground if she breaks plays that kind of that seems like coubertin's lane um okay so they do they light the flame from a parabolic mirror which reflects the sun's light in such a way that it can it can you know burst 
some gas into flame as well. And I checked on the Olympic, the official Olympic website, and the, the quote that they have about lighting a flame from a parabolic mirror is, and I quote, that it guarantees the purity of the flame. Which sounds lovely until you think about it for a second. As for what on earth does that mean? But anyway, the purest of pure flames is lit in a, in a in the ceremony in Olympia, and off they go. So in this year, in 1952, the relay began, and the torch brings its winds its way down to to Athens, where it gets on a plane for the first time, and is flown to Denmark, and stopping in Germany twice along the way, because. Planes had to refuel, I guess, in the 50s. And then um, what they decided to do for, because it was it was in Finland, they decided that they would start and uh, a parallel torch race from Lapland. And so another ceremony was held with another parabolic mirror uh, to light uh, another flame that was to come down from the north. Uh, and so they had the midnight sun torch and then the Olympic torch come to meet uh, to meet together. The, it was overcast when they tried to light that one from the parabolic mirror. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. It's all fine. It's fine. Through a little bit of fudging, they they got it lit. Has anyone tried matches? That wouldn't be pure. It wouldn't Sorry. be pure. No, no. As soon as I said that, I realized my error. Continue. To preserve the purity, and we're sticking with the word purity, I feel, <laughs> of the flame, they, they have several go at once. And they do, they've done this since the start and they do it even today. So there's never just one flame on the go. There's, they, they kind of light several from, from the original, whatever, ignition. And, uh, and so they can always have a backup because sometimes it blows out. Sometimes it's, you know, hijacked and sabotaged by someone who's trying to make a point. And either way, they have backup flames. So anyway, Anna comes up, it comes to Denmark, they cross over into Sweden, they go north, they meet the one coming from Lapland, the, the Midnight Torch Flame, and they both get merged in Tornio. And then down it makes its way to Helsinki. It stops, which is quite nice, at one point in um, on the fourth, the night of the 4th of July. It spends in the Olympic Stadium in Stockholm. Um, and so even though it there wasn't a cauldron at the, the Stockholm Olympics, there has been an Olympic flame in that stadium. And I kind of like the way it kind of goes back and, and stays there for a bit. Makes its way down for the opening ceremony on the 19th of July. And as we said, I love, I love a cauldron. Who lit the cauldron? I gotta say it's um, our favourite person ever, Chris. You're thinking Pavel Nermi. I, I would have assumed. I would have assumed. I'm going to guess it was Hannes Kolomainen. I yeah. took out this. You're both right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Nermi brings the brings the flame into the into the stadium and lights it at a temporary cauldron. So they have like a makeshift cauldron there down on the actual on the actual um on the the track, I guess. And uh, that's lovely. And then I believe four football players take the or a relay of four football players take it from the cauldron on the actual field and up the 72.71 meter tall tower to the top where it is taken over by Kalmainen who lights it at the top. He had to get a lift up because he's getting on it. <laughs> it's rude to laugh. <laughs> I did laugh. I did laugh. I you did. That's very different. That's a very different reaction. Do you know how many torches there were? How many torches were there? I'm going to say because it's my favourite number, 72. No, well, bear in mind that at the Beijing Olympics, there were about 26,000 torches made. 72. 723. You can't! That's just a multiplication of 72! It's actually, there were 22 torches. It's the fewest torches that were ever used in a, in a race. And that's why they're astonishingly valuable. Um, oh, that's so, very good. Very so good. One, of them, one of them went for sale for 290 grand in auction in Paris a few years ago, as far as I know. But there you go. Yeah. 
Olympic torches. All the rage. I love that story. I loved the position of that story. And I loved how yeah, you mentioned the football. Because... It has been one of the things that has been, and and you know, as a fan favourite, James, you know, I love talking about the football during these Olympopods, despite the fact that I know nothing about football. And this morning, Chris sent me a text saying, oh, I'm guessing you've taken the football. And I went... I suppose I have. Uh, but I went. <laughs> I will now. I will now. Um, and I looked it up. I looked it up. And like Chris said, said, oh, I'm guessing you love the match between Yugoslavia and Russia. And I went, I suppose I do. And um, I, 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 I looked it up on Wikipedia. It was a bit sparse. It was a bit sparse. But then I found an article about Yugoslavia versus Russia on a website called RussianFootballNews.com. Oh. <laughs> and I have to say, I looked it up and I was just like, okay, what I want is a bit of a, a bit of insight into 1952 Russia versus Yugoslavia. I got a bit of context from Chris. I got a bit of context from Wikipedia. I just wanted, I just wanted something to just give me the full, the the full knowledge of it. Anyway, I found it on RussianFootballNews.com. So I'm going to read the opening uh, paragraph of FootballNews.com on Yugoslavia versus Russia. Yugoslavia, the now extinct country is still a favourite topic among historians. Some describe it with its positive sides, while others point to the negative impact it had on society, culture and sports. One thing is, however, certain. It is, and it was, in many ways, a unique country. History has taught us all that all countries have a lifespan, just like any other living organism. They are born, but after some time, they also die. And I felt that this website would give me all the insight I needed to know about the uh, specific topic that Chris gave me to learn about, which was... Yugoslavia versus uh, Soviet Union in the 1952 games. <laughs> Things die. <laughs> Things die. Not just that, but like Yugoslavia, some positives, but also, like anything, a lot of negatives. A lot of negatives specifically about life, um, specifically about uh, existence. Um, sport, but also non-sport, um, art, non-art, uh, specific points. Yeah. So anyway, this is where I got all my information about this particular, this specific, uh, point. Will I continue? Please. So, 1952, it was the first time that, uh, the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia Mesh in the footy, um, and 
Um, they had other matches before this at the 1952 Summer Games. But this was particularly poignant because uh, very recently, 1948, Tito had split from the Soviet um, communist policy of Stalin. Yugoslavia was now kind of in a very separate, in a very separate uh, direction. It was still communist. It was still within Europe, but it was going in a very different direction than Stalinism and the Soviet Union. So they were connected by this kind of this kind of like east-west divide but they were also very very separate and this was going to be a huge match between them both of them the russians the soviets and uh, the yugoslavs got telegrams before this match from their uh, leaders tito and stalin saying you're gonna have to fucking win this match um and it was all good it was all good up to a point for the Yugoslavs. They were 5-1 going into, like they, they were in the second half, they were 5-1 and they were going, oh yeah, our Stalinism, Tishawism, is the best. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, but then the, 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 the Soviets were like, ah, here, let's just kick a couple of goals in there. They did. They kicked four goals in. It was now five all. And, uh, they had to go to extra time. And after extra time, it was still five all. And everyone was like, oh my God, who's the better communist? I don't know. Is it Tito? Is it Stalin? I don't know. Cause we've got all the footballers here and they've not been able to decide. So two days later, there was a rematch. And during the rematch, unfortunately, we found that the best communists were the Tito's. It was 3-1 to Yugoslavia. And it was absolute bloodbath, bloodless bloodbath for the uh, Soviets. We'll save that for the next Olympipod. Nay. Um, the, the, the main feeder into this CSKA Moscow the main club that was feeding into this uh football team it was not quite disbanded but it was relegated quite severely its main coach was stripped of all coaching uh credentials and yeah the the the, the, the footballers it wasn't great for them anyway Yugoslavia went on they didn't win the tournament but um, they didn't get sent to Siberia so fair play <laughs> the end of all the best stories uh, yeah but after Stalin died a year later they came back to they did which was like super like, like how handy is that like after like you get absolutely like and, and the thing is you did a really good match you went up from 5-1 to 5-all. And then your next match, okay, it's 3-1, grand. But, like, like if you, you would kind of feel a bit screwed over. Like, Chris, you're the only um, semi-professional athlete on this call. Like, how annoyed would you be if Michal Martin slash Leo Varadkar told you, like, Chris, you're not allowed to come back to Ireland because you lost a match in handball against the Faroe Islands 3823 does that seem yeah. realistic probably happen at some point yeah <laughs> well look Ruth uh, all 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 you can say is you're only as good as your last match 
And that was quite literally the case for these poor men. Uh, but they were spared from Siberia, so that's uh, that's good. Only news. because he died. A win's a win, yeah. You know they need it. You know they they'll take a win where they, wherever they can get it. But the Yugoslavians didn't get gold in the end. It was the rise this championship of uh, the magnificent Magyars, Hungary, uh, Hungarys, uh, hung, Hungarys, Hungarys golden Hungarians. Team. The Hungarians of Hungary won uh, the tournament, beating. The Magyars of Hungary uh, won two nil against Yugoslavia in the final in the end, and they would go on to be the dominant team of the 1950s. They beat world powers such as England, Uruguay, and uh, the Soviets as well. And a very famous football player, Ferenc Puskas, was in that team. The best goal of every year in football now gets the Ferenc Puskas Award. So that's how influential he and that hungarian team were as they brought in total football both you and james mentioned the fact that the uh, soviets and the americans were carrying around this uh like board to show who was getting the most medals but by by per capita the hungarians and the czechs like completely stormed away with this like there was no competition per capita the, both of them were less than 10 million population. Okay, the Soviets, the US, they were coming up with more medals, but they also had like very big populations to be coming in with. James, what sport are you going to take out? What sport are you going to put in? This is like, the pressure here is enormous, obviously. And this is, you know, it has been, has taken up Sleepless nights worth of consideration what goes in, what stays out. Nights I've been up thinking about this, Ruth, because yeah. I've been considering this question since the very first episode. If this ever fell to me, what would my decision make? It's I'm not just, I was ready. I got the call. I was ready to serve. I, I wasn't like just Johnny come lately. Okay. So we've had a few equestrians come up, right? Along the, the journey. So we've mentioned our Danish silver medalist, Liz Hartel. We've men, uh, mentioned uh, Fox Hunter, the, the British gold medalist. Well, and well, it was the horse. Harry the Lion. I was, I was getting it. So I think it's only right that I get rid of an equestrian event, seeing as we've celebrated them so much. Get them out of there. And I've decided that it's possibly a controversial take. I feel that the horse dancing, it's weird. It has to go. It's gone. Dressage. I just... It's too, it's too much. I appreciate it's very difficult. I appreciate that it's a huge amount. Do you appreciate that? Do you know what I actually do? To be fair, because you know you're you're it's odd and it's weirdly controlling. You know you're you're the amount of of work that must go into getting a horse to to move in that way at your command. It's quite impressive, but it's odd and it looks weird. And also it's in two events. So they there's a dressage event and then there's eventing. So what we can do is as a bit of compromise because I am you know. Nothing if not about compromise. Let's get rid of dressage, but keep eventing. So there's still some dressage in there. You've got show jumping, you've got cross country, you've got dressage. So people can have their horse dancing. That's a very interesting way to go because I would have taken out eventing and had the individuals going around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I see. No, I see. I see the argument for that. But I want to minimize the amount of horse dancing. And also, I've got a big thing to replace it. So I feel okay, like, Grant. you know, we need that space on the. The schedule. To be fair, that's the only place we have cross country in eventing. Well, exactly. There you go. There you go. So we're we're keeping as many things as we can. 
And, you know, I think there's a lot of listeners and a lot of people who have come on this podcast and will in the future come on who are thinking what you've just said, but would not have been brave enough to say it. So I think that Sorry. deserves a lot Sorry. of credit. That means a lot to me, Chris, and I don't want to hear Sorry. what you're to say. Sorry. <laughs> Neither of you listened to any of these Olympopods because I have had a very, very emotional and personal tirade against not necessarily dressage as a sport, but dressage as it has personally attacked me. So like I, I don't I don't understand why this is suddenly a new thing to kind of approach both of you. This for, has for a guest. For a guest to come on. Okay. And, 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 and do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's different. I mean, this is it's your unique. platform. It's unique. It's unique and it's brave. And thank you, James. Thank you you're for both, coming on. You're both very brave. You're so brave. <laughs> Look, we're all brave. I mean, I mean, that's just, that's just stipulated. Okay. Right. What goes in? That's the big question we're all wondering at this point, I think. And there's two possibilities, and they're both horsey. So you know, we're keeping within the general genre. We're trying to you know, we're trying to keep as many people happy as possible. While okay, I'll... okay, but just James, James, I'm just gonna say it's not appropriate, and it's also like it also doesn't suit our timelessness to be bringing the British royal family into this. So just like keep that in mind when you're uh, choosing a sport to bring in. We already have. That's correct. We have already and also in some of the pave footage from the show jumping um prince philip was was there in the crowd anyway and how does he look better than he looks now but he was also about 140 years younger than he is now so so he's about what 84 <laughs> all right <laughs> so the um the sports that could possibly go in I, and this is where I, i'm gonna have to make a call i appreciate because i don't think you're going to allow me to put two in in place of one we will absolutely not allow that, James. We will absolutely not. So give us give us your two and then like give us your one. So give us your two. The Aga Khan Cup got a mention earlier on in the in the um in the podcast. And a sport which I think everybody enjoys. Great spectator sport. We can all get behind it. It's something that happens in the Dublin horse show every year, is the Puissance. Love the Puissance. The Puissance is fantastic. So for those of you who are not familiar with the puissance, you've got a wall, you've got a horse, you've got someone riding the horse, and you jump over the wall, and the wall gets higher and higher and higher with each round. And it's very exciting, great spectator sport. So I'd say the puissance is a possibility. That could be noticed. So my arguments against the puissance. We already have the puissance, and it's the high jump and the pole vault. And instead of pushing a horsey, we get a person and we get the person to go over the puissance. And I understand it's a pole, but in which case, let's just like get a kind of like middle ground. Let's let's get a middle ground and let's make a wall for the person who's jumping over the pole. Okay, well, then that case, can we get rid of the steeplechase? Because we already have... Horses doing something. <laughs> I think we should get rid of the horses and we should make the like eventing for people better. So like there's more jumps for people and it's like more kind of like, oh, if you step into the water, that's minus four points. But it's for people. Anyway, give us give us, give us your second go. Give us your second go. I I'm I'm against I'm against your first option, but I've been against other people's options and yet here we are. So anyway, go on. Number two. Okay, number two is let's go back to our roots. Let us let's bring it right back to ancient Greece 
and let's have chariot racing. Let us have full-on Ben-Hur style chariot racing. Let's have spokes that like rip the shreds out of people. Maybe let's not do that part. Let's have chariot racing. Let's have look, we can we can work out the details, but we, you know, we have certain like circuses, like Roman circuses left. We could use those. Like the Circus Max was just sitting there in Rome. It's literally it's just literally lying there. Like already infrastructure. It's not great. It needs a bit of a bit of lick of a paint here and there. Why does it? Feasible. I mean, you know, for, up for debate. So there is that's one that's one option. So I think either let's go back. We already have we have modern contemporaries. We've got like sulky racing and things like that. We could we could bring those in. Um, but I would like it to be full on, if possible. There are trumpets, there are flags, there are horses. There is a biblical epic happening in and around the the event. So, so do, you, my do you want a bit of crucifixion, and do you want kind of like you're very negative about the Bible? No, no, you just you just said that you kind of want a bit of like Roman like spectacle there as well as like you want you want kind of like the just the best bits. Oh, just the best bits. Yeah. So just the slaves on the chariots. I feel like you're misrepresenting what I'm saying here. <laughs> I I don't... No, no. Okay, sorry. Sorry, I've misrepresented what you've said. Sorry, sorry. I apologize. I apologize. Clar- clarify that. <laughs> so here's my, here's my one thing. I like, I, and I apologize for my my cheap joy but you there. Um, I do understand what you're saying. Let's have chariot racing. The only thing is, is that we've prevented in the past, and by we, I do mean Pierre de Coubertin, from having motorsports. Because, like, you know, once you bring a wheel into an event that isn't a bicycle, because obviously a bicycle is so pure and virginal, that's very different. But in terms of a horse... I, I, I do wonder. Do we do we need, like, I, I wonder. Do we need to take all animals out of the Olympic Games? Do we need to have people pulling the chariots? Now, I would say with something like chariot racing, like there, you're you're now arguing between, you're now arguing that we shouldn't have horses and we shouldn't have jumping, we shouldn't have dressage, we shouldn't have cross country, we shouldn't have any of that. Well, yeah, but like with dressage, we with dressage we have rhythmic gymnastics. Sure. With um, with with show jumping, we have, as you said, steeplechase. I'm gonna, yeah, okay, but right, my argument or an argument in favor of chariot racing is that there's a huge amount of physical strength required to control your horses, and there are four in hand horse races which exist in the in the world where you are like you know you're you're pulling a team of four horses to to get around various tracks. So that could be an argument in favor of the uh, the human effort that's involved in in the activity. So it's not just, and not to imply that there's no human effort involved in any other horse racing sports, provided, <laughs> stipulated, but, uh, but that's an, an argument perhaps in its favor. That's fair enough. And, and then like say with the Olympic pentathlon, um, where you wouldn't have your horses for your horse jumping previously. Like, do you think that it should be anonymous horses that you have to like have on your charts? So like, or, or like, so, so like, say for eventing, you bring your own horse from your own country to the event. Do you think for the chariot racing, it should just be like horses from the region? 
I'm not against it. Um, I would almost go as far as to say that I'm for it. Yes. I, I'm so glad you've put thought into this. You know what? There is a, a top class harness event because harness racing is very uh, popular in Sweden. And in the south of Gothenburg, there is an event called the Olympia Throvit, which is the literally the Olympic trot, which is a harness race uh, for lots of money. And yeah, it's one man, one horse on a, a two-wheeled uh, chariot-esque thing. So, you know, there's definitely some uh, groundswell of support, yeah. So, do you know what? Like, I'm for this because Ireland has a really great chance of this. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I'm against this is because at the start of this episode, I said we're like opening up to the majority of our listeners who are not Irish. And or, related, or related to you. <laughs> or related to me, either by blood or marriage. Um, and I, I like, I, I, I don't know, like, I, it's like, okay, we, we'll take this in this time. We will. And like we've said before, we are going to be approaching the IOC we are going to be giving them the new Olympic schedule. If they don't accept it, okay, that's not our fault. We've tried, like we've tried, and this and this is what the Olympic schedule should be. We'll put it forward. We'll put it forward, James. So we're going with chariot racing. Uh, Police dance is not happening. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you're the guest and you decide. Do you know what? I want, I want the chariot racing. I like the puissance, and maybe someone else might take up the cause in a future episode. That's that's just some. It's just, it's an idea out there in the ether. I think I'm going to go with chariot racing. I I love I love puissance. I just feel it's already out there, but it's on the track and field. And look, with people. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've hashed that out. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I understand what you're saying, James. It's really fun when it happens in Dublin because they've got this big red wall. But I just feel like, okay, let's just do that. Well, we could also have like a big, like whatever the city is wall. Like you could do jump over the Parthenon if it's enough. Yeah, you know, you... let's just keep that with the high jump and the pole vault. Okay. For now. For now. <laughs> Until James comes back for the ancient Olympics episode. <laughs> or the music special gets another chance. When are we chance. gonna have a music special? We've already like like we've we've jumped over all the music episodes. Oh, when we go when we go back in time uh, in between seasons three and four. <laughs> well, was this a bad time to tell you that this is my this is actually me launching my spin off podcast, Ancient Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> Would you haven't heard we haven't heard our unreleased Olympopod, um, which was an an ancient Olympopod, which was actually recorded from the same room you are currently in. Ooh, mm. my gosh! <laughs> uh, <laughs> quickly before we uh, we let you go, as we have been recording for two hours. Two hours. Quick, uh, just off the top of your head, James, if you were in 1952 competing, what would you have the best chance of winning medal? <laughs> oh God. Um, I forgot this was an option for a question. <laughs> we actually haven't asked this in a while. Because we had an Olympian in the last one? <laughs> yeah. We kind of know what he fancied his chances in, I'd say. Oh, God. Like, literally nothing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, we've gone well past the stage where I think anyone could be like, oh, yeah, I could possibly just even compete that in the same day as the people who were, who were, who were actually taking part. Um, so with that in mind, I'm going to say the 100 meters. <laughs> like the Olympic champion said, you just have to be best on the exactly, day. You share exactly. the same values. James, I, if if I had been 
alive. I, I would have been there cheering for you. I would have. I would have. Yeah, I, I don't think you would have won, but it'd been great just to see you in the heats. And look, I wouldn't have meddled because, you know, as, as discussed previously, if you're not going to be the best of all time, no medal for you. And I'm not... <laughs> I'm not... <And> um, <laughs> And I'm not going to claim that I would have been. But you know what the thing is? But you know what the thing is? Like, one of the things that we've discovered is that if you just arrive and you're Irish and you have a bit of a Wikipedia page, there's an option that you might be mentioned on the Olympopods. So, you know, it, like, I mean, that's that's great just in itself. Yep. I'll take it. I'll take it. And with that in mind... As I mentioned several times, but also at the front of this, inexplicably, we are listened to in 41 countries. I, I think it's now the time to kind of extend. We've, we've had one super fan who admittedly is related to me um, on the Olympopod, but we would love to hear from all our other fans from all the other countries around the world. Get in touch with us. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. But also you can uh, message us on our email. Chris, what is our email? Olympopod at gmail.com. Olympopod at gmail.com. Send us a voice note. Tell us, like, because we know, we we already know all of you Indian listeners. We've seen you. We've seen you listening to us. Um, Argentinians, we've seen you. Vietnamese, we've seen you. Um, New Zealand, you two people. We we we've seen you two people in New Zealand. Um, thank you. You one person in Kazakhstan. Thank you for continuing to log in each week. Um, but no, all of you, please message us, send us a voice note, whatever. Tell us where you're listening from. Tell us what your favorite story so far has been. Tell us what story you're most looking forward to that we haven't yet mentioned. And yeah, we just want to hear from you. James has been on. Could it be you next? Brilliant. And James, uh, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. I, I think like top, top notch facts. Uh, I think in terms of pure facts, since Bill Mallon, you might have been the best so far. Oh, that's t- that is incredibly high praise. Olympian praise. Love it. Uh, come on, 72.3 meters. That's Yeah, that was actually I mean, really that's, good. That's James. world class. James, do you know what? We'll give you a silver medal. (laughs) I will take it. I will take it. In Olympic facts. (laughs) There was no gold medal. There was no gold medal. But we'll give you a silver medal. Thank you. Thank you, James. And uh, thank you, Ruth. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Next time, we're going to Australia for the Friendly Games in Melbourne, 1956. The Friendly Games. Or was it? We'll find out. 